Hello, Sobertown. Let's jump on that sober train and ride into the wonderful world of sobriety. You can find all our podcasts and more at SobertownPodcast.com. My name is Bill W. and my co-host and partner is Kira. Hi, everyone. This is the eighth episode of the Uncovering Happiness podcast. Our hope for this podcast is to share stories about uncovering happiness so that you might do the same in your life. Our guest today is Michael. Michael has been clean and sober since January 1st, 2011, almost 10 years. And since his childhood, he always wanted to be a movie star. And recently he's accomplished that dream by writing and starring in his own movie, a film about how rock climbing saved his life and the lives of three other addicts called Rockaholic. And before we begin, we would just like to take a moment for mindfulness. This helps us transition from whatever we were doing before to the present moment. And also we wanna take time to remember people that we've lost to addiction or suicide, to send out compassion and hope for those who are touched by the suffering of mental illness and addiction, and some time for self-love for ourselves. Let's take about 15 seconds now. Okay, thank you so much for joining me in that mindful moment. And Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. (laughs) Great. Well, we are going to jump right into the first question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what does uncovering happiness mean to you? I think for me, it's tapping into something that I've always had growing up. I think there's a sort of childlike innocence that we all have. We play, we laugh as a kid. And for me, as I got older, um, I kind of forgot about that kid. um, And I forgot about those moments of joy. As an adult, we have different moments of joy. But for me, it went down a very dark street. And so uncovering any type of happiness now is a lot easier because I've had some tools and some life changes and some things that become my passion that have changed all that so I can easily tap into the joy and the happiness. I love that. What are some of the best tools that you've used to start uncovering happiness in your life? It's a toss-up. Desserts or rock climbing? No, (laughs) rock climbing is the number one passion that really um, gives me instant joy. Um, And we'll talk more about it. Um, The desserts would be second. Or if it's not rock climbing because it's, you know, rainy weather out, um, it's opened the way for other sports like hiking, um, river rafting, kayaking. So that sort of genre is so exciting to me. Awesome. And it's just like, like you were saying about when we were kids and we played and we were so free and happy. I feel like doing some of these sports and activities really allow us to tap back into that childlike nature and play like kids just climb all over anything and don't think about it. Jungle gyms. And then you know, going rock climbing, it's like a jungle gym for everyone, for grownups. Yeah, it's like an outdoor rock climbing gym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I have a question. 
when do you think you lost that childlike joy? You know, where, where was that like childness to adult transition down that dark alleyway that you said? Um, it was probably when I was in college, I was probably about 21, 22 ish. And I had never done anything. I didn't, I didn't really drink. I had maybe like a couple of drinks, but, um, it was drinking sort of led to this moment where I had I'd smoked pot. I was in a film or a play called West Side Story in college. And I was playing the cop, Lieutenant Shrank, and they wanted him to smoke a fake cigarette on stage. And so I had to kind of do it. So one of the younger people in the cast um, asked me, why don't you just smoke it like you smoke pot? I go, I've never smoked pot. So at a cast party at my house, she brought over a bomb. And I was already kind of drunk from Henry Weinhardt's. Um, so she tried to teach me how to smoke. And it wasn't until the next, I, I didn't feel what they call stoned. I felt the alcohol. And I had spaghetti in my system. So I would always find ways to put food in myself when, like food was my first love. So the next day I, I kind of woke up and I was more hungover. I didn't feel the effects, but the next time I hung out with that same group, I tried it. And I felt like not that moment, but at some point that, oh man, I'm not this sort of virgin, if you will, with drugs, I've done pot. Oh no, it's over for me. And I think I had, um, I, I have anxiety, so I worry. So I was worried that that, what if my family finds out I smoke pot? wasn't legal then. What if my friends find out? What if my teachers find out? So I just kind of, that was in the back of my mind going forward. And then it kind of led to other things, more, um, more um, harsher stuff, if you will. And I just, there was no way of going back to that kid that I was, that innocent kid who loved superheroes and, you know, like Legos. And who loved to eat food. Um, I was just like becoming this college student, I guess. <laughs> I became an, another stat. 30% of college students at Chico State smoke pot every day. I think it's more than that because Chico State was a big party school then. Hmm. So you fell into that stereotype of the college world and were you, was it that like after that you were trying to fit in or it was just like the drugs pot, I guess, at that point, um, was it helping you feel better about other things you're anxious about in your life? Or is it, you know, like, how did that play out? I think um, it was to fit in, like you mentioned, I got into a lot of plays. I was uh, the captain of the speech and debate team. I had a lot of trophies uh, for going to competitions for speech and debate. So it just kind of fit. But I thought that smoking pot would actually relax me into the scene or to the situation wherever I was. It actually made me more, um, create more anxiety for me as I look back. Um, but I never let it impact the academic stuff that I was doing. But pot did lead to stuff like acid, you know, and the way it was prefaced to me is, yeah, let's go do a dose of acid. We'll go out in nature. It's so pretty here in the hills of Chico and we'll just enjoy it. It's, it's just like pot, you'll be fine. And it just kind of added a whole, I felt like I was in that movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with, I don't even remember the Latino actor's name. Oh, um, wasn't it Benicio, Brad Pitt? And then, yeah, it, I think it was Benicio Del Toro. That's it. So when I saw that film, and I did the, the, the acid. It felt like I was in the movie. <laughs> it was so 
crisp and everything was accentuated and colors were vibrant. And it was sort of like a mind blowing thing. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I thought it was really cool. I didn't feel like there was that, that after effect like being hungover, but it definitely did lead to other things. And I was still functional in college. I, I didn't start to not get like, I didn't start to be super dysfunctional until maybe the end of college, moving on from college. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I can relate to as well. You know, I was that same type of person before I went into college. You know, I had like a couple of beers before college and then I got to college and all the kids in my floor, my dorm room were like, hey, let's go to this. to go. I can't hear you, Bill. Okay, I'm back. Here you are, Kara. Yeah. <laughs> Bill, oh. are you back with us? Here he is. <laughs> yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, you guys got back quick. I felt That's like cool. I was in that movie Insidious and I had to go to that other place, the other <laughs> world to, to save you two. Oh, well, I'm glad you did. It was scary. <laughs> well, that's going to be fun cutting that part out, Bill. No, we're going to leave it. <laughs> it wasn't that long. So, yeah. Um, so that's, I had a very similar story in my, in my college days too. It's just one thing leads to another and then another. And then all of a sudden you're just saying yes to everything. And that, that childhood ambition just gets left behind because you're, you're exploring every other facet of your world, which, you know, I think is important, but also, you got to kind of keep a grip on reality, too. Yeah. I feel there's a giddiness that when you do try and experiment with drugs, um, because pot led to dosing acid, but that also led to ecstasy that raves. Um, the atmosphere, the place that you go, becomes a big plays a big role in that. Because they couldn't just see me having drugs at home watching TV. It has to be something that there's an outdoor space or it has to be like a all-night club like a rave or whatever but that giddiness that you get because you have fun with your friends and you get giddy and you're like high or whatever but i it, it, it's not the same sort of giddiness you get as a kid because if i was a kid or if i was just or even adult and i wasn't partying that giddiness that happiness that childlike uh, aspect that we have would continue with coming down off of drugs or even alcohol it kind of goes away the next day or the next day and it feels dark. You, your insecurities come up and a child can be so spontaneous in the moment that they'll go from point A to point B and not experiencing any of those things because obviously they're not drugs. So I think that there's a sort of, you know, a child at play experience and then a child at play experience or giddiness or something from drugs inducing that. And then it goes away because it's not real. You know, it's, some chemical. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost seems like it's no accident that so many children flow into the path of drug addiction because it seems like the natural progression of play. Like, take this chemical or substance and then go have fun, go dance all night, yeah, like play games. And it seems like it's so easy to be tricked into going into the danger zone. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people can, 
use substances and not become an addict and not ruin their lives, not overdose. But so many of us, um, you know, kind of get handed the, the wrong card with that and cannot handle it, but it's really not our fault. It seemed like fun and playful and childlike and, you know, but. And flirty. Like if you're at the dance club, you see some cute people, you want to dance near them or you want them to look at you. And then you get all giddy in a different way with your friends. So that was <laughs> kind of fun. But you said something that the, the dark, the, was it the uh, danger zone? Yeah. The danger zone too, for me in, when I lived in San Francisco, I had left uh, Chico at one point and went to San Francisco. But what I wanted to say about that was that there were things that I wouldn't allow myself to do to, because it would mean going further. Oh, just like the movie Insidious, the further is what they called it, going further into that zone. Um, I was really good about safeguarding myself from doing certain things and consequences, which we can talk about later. You know, I made sure that I didn't drink and drive or did drugs and drive. I made sure because I didn't want to go to jail because that consequence so registered for me, even though I was high as a kite, I didn't want to have to steal. So I've always made money or I've always had money to pay my way. And just all the things like even prostituting yourself because you're a survivor and you have no money. And that's the only thing you know in a big city that you could do to get money to pay the rent. I never allowed myself to go those ways to that dark zone because it scared the hell out of me because I knew if I became that person, it would be the very person I was taught not to be growing up. So it's funny that you, you say that. <laughs> yeah. I'm nervous as I, as I laugh because I'm so glad I didn't go that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so we're going to move on a little bit. Michael, so who are you now? Where are you on your journey to uncover happiness? Who am I now? Oh, my God, that's such an esoteric question. <laughs> who, are we, who are we really on this earth? Um, well, I, I made a, a comment earlier in the conversation about my little bio that I wanted to be a star growing up. I wanted to be a movie star. I grew up in L.A. near Hollywood. It was a very exciting time watching movies and TVs and wanting to be that guy. But through the work that I've done um, in human resources as a talent manager, finding people, finding talent and hiring them at my company, I feel that um, I'm sort of a connector of people. I'm really good at that. I'm really good at matching people, matchmaking them. I've match made 14 couples in a climbing group that I run who are all married and moved in together and climb around the world together. It's really sweet. I've been the best man at two weddings. So I'm definitely a connector of people. I, I, you know, if you are looking for, you know, a handsaw, I don't personally use handsaws. I don't know how, but I bet you I can find someone that does and connect you. So it doesn't have to be just a romantic thing or, you know, career thing. Um, I think that I'm also somebody that is able to, you know, make people shine, um, produce talent, look for talent. That's part of that too, is kind of find those things in people that other people push away that I find really attractive because it's, it's sort of, you're, they're a very diverse person and I have had a diverse experience growing up and I want, I feel more comfortable when I'm with people that are different than me, not just like me, but both. And I think I'm really good about sort of identifying um, the highlights of people, the highest points, um, their lightness that they sometimes will sum submerge down below. Um, I'm also a human being, like all of us here, you know, I'm somebody that craves love, craves attention, 
craves humor, good food. Um, community is a huge theme for me. And so um, right now I part of these climbing meetups where I create these uh, climbs and we go with a bunch of people and I lead them. And it's just the most exciting thing because it's part of climbing, which is my passion, but it's also bringing people together and bringing people together that are better than me, better climbers, so that we can climb together because I don't have to always be that powerful rope gun that does all the hard climbs because that's not who I am. Um, so I'm definitely a human being that um, I feel like I'm on this earth to experience what it's like to be alive, but I think I'm also here to kind of make a difference in my life, which makes a difference in other people's lives, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like the way you have discovered how to be happy again or to uncover full fuller happiness in your life is to utilize those con- those connection-making skills or strengths in your life, like in your groups, in the ac- actual th- behaviors that you're doing, like running meetup groups, making connections with people. Those are the things that make you happy. Have yes. those always been talents of yours? Yeah, I would be the person on the block that would be the director of all the plays or play acting or charades with the kids and they would all come <laughs> over and I would give them all, I would I would sort of give them the part, but it's because I already knew their personality. So I knew that they could do that. Um, so yeah, I guess that part is creating something from nothing, you know, which is one of the one-on-one things of art that you first learn that I was able to kind of do it naturally. Of course, I would put myself in the play in one of the leads at first, but the difference between that time in childhood is now I can put myself behind the scenes and produce other people to be stars, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to know more about your meetups. How'd that okay. start? Were you always the, uh, the were you the person that started this meetup group? You know, how big is it? How'd you get involved? I want to know everything about it. Sure. So when I discovered climbing, I wanted to go outdoors and I didn't really know anybody in my gym to take me outdoors. Um, So I joined this thing called Meetup and I joined a couple of local Bay Area, San Francisco meetups and they were awesome. I started going outdoors and meeting people and climbing with them and learning about more about safety and myself and just really developed. But I also, I really loved the social aspect. That was probably my favorite part, even more than the climbing, to be honest, because they met people like me. And I think, um, I, but then as time went by, I noticed that some of the leaders in the two meetups I was in, they were kind of controlling um, my theme about that. I have such concerns about controlling behavior. Like I think there's a different style and I was trying to figure out what that was for me and I figured it out. Um, Not at first. Um, I like to be treated in a group. Like I'm just like everybody else and I'm treated with dignity and respect and I'm fair and people don't gloss over someone or they don't, ignore someone. And in this group, it got really clicky. And the leaders were, um, they just weren't somebody that I that I saw that they, there was a lot of newbies and new people in the groups that were being left aside. I'm not like that. I'm the type of person that, hey, you know, I'm not the leader of the group, but hey, why don't you come climb with me over here with us and I'll show you the ropes. So I thought, you know, with my, I met a best friend in this group. So that was really the positive in the group, but he and I were talking like, why don't I start a group. Why don't we start a group? Because why? There's so many great ones already. I go, I know, but it could be more inclusive of all people, you know, GLBT, mature individuals, disabled families with kids. It can be everything because these groups over here, while they're good groups, it's very limited. It's just 20 somethings. They get little 
uh, catty, they get a little um, exclusive. And I don't think that that's really the purpose of community. So we create a community from the ground up. We can include everybody. And that was my reasoning. And he kind of was like a little resistant at first, but then he got it. So I created it in November 2011. And it just kind of took off. It was when he and I and then four members. And then it got to about 5,000 members today. Wow. Yeah. And it was, so I was so excited about it. I was marketing to all the other people in the gyms. And I was just kind of, but I brought things to it that made it really unique. Um, you know, Hans Flooring, big uh, giant pro climber. He um, agreed. I met him at his gym. He was a general manager for a gym in the area. And he agreed to do a class for us because I would love to do a core for climbers class. But I didn't realize it was also a marketing thing for him to get people to go to his gym across the bay. But it was fine because he's Hans Florian. He's Hollywood Hans. And so he led core for climbing classes at some of the gyms. And it was amazing. People just flocked and showed up. Most of them just wanted to meet him because he's a pro climber. Um, so that was the first wave. The second wave is I took a group climbing to Thailand. I took seven people through my meetup. And of course, I didn't pay for it all, but I found the discounts. I did all the organization. I did all the travel, what they needed, and made it happen. We all made it happen together, but I definitely made that happen. And it was exciting. I knew that right after that trip, we came back. It would be put us on the map for just being the great meetup in San Francisco. And it led to other great things. We climbed in Canada, Mexico. Um, I took four people to China. Um, and then we started to do climbing comps and then a t-shirt contest and then a design contest, which would be our logo. And I think the most exciting thing for me was um, going to all the film festivals, Real Rock um, and stuff like that with our group. And then I met at a climb, Alex Honnell, you know, free solo climber, his mother, Deirdre, and she um, started to hang out with our group one day. And I didn't even know her. And someone, her friend goes, hey, Michael, have you met Deirdre? I go, no. Hi, nice to meet you. Like I would anybody. And he's like, oh, Alex's mom. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't get it. <laughs> Alex, my Alex's mom. She climbed. And it was really nice to meet you there because I get to climb with her. But after meeting Deirdre, this group, this community allowed us all to meet somebody that had that sort of direct access because they're out there climbing too, where we are. And, you know, I met Chris Sharma twice and all these great superstars. And that's kind of how it took off. Since then, years later, I've been doing it since 2011, um, I was able to kind of take a break, put someone in charge, move people around to be the second person while I went and explored Alaska, um, Crater Lake, Oregon, and now I'm in Oregon. And so it kind of morphed. I left the big one, put someone in charge, and created, when I came back from Alaska, smaller, more intimate with the same brand. It was called Get Your Climb On or Geico. Very catchy. And so I came back and it's, the smaller one is like an indie band. It's got about 600 people. The other one's still going big and they changed the name, which is fine. But I think um, when I came here, I was thinking I was just going to be here for a short time, but it's been nine, plus, nine months past. And I created another one with the same brand. So it's Get Your Climb On Orchid or Gaiku. And we have about 503 people today. And I've been taking people locally, getting to know the different crimes for the last um, four or five months. And it feels like that time that I created in San Francisco. And that's sort of how my experience with Meetup um, helped shape me and my climbing experience and the community that I'm in. It allowed me to kind of create this co-community because I'm not an expert. I'm definitely not a certified guy. I'm just somebody like them up here who climbs. I might have some more experiences around the world climbing, but I definitely like to surround myself with good people. Like we have a climb going on in two weeks 
and I made sure I said, you know, I want lead climbers at this level, you know, this many, you know, if you have like four lead climbers and four non-lead climbers, then chances are it's going to be a good mix. And I definitely like to find the rope guns that are better than me. Um, so I don't know, there's, it's, it's something I'm continuing to do. I'm excited about it again. I did kind of get a little burnout growing 5,000 people in San Francisco, but now I'm not burnout anymore. Wow. I found my inner happiness. Again. That, that's awesome. It's really cool that you can recreate that feeling, that happiness, wherever you go. You know, you can yeah. start something brand new and say, I've done this before. I know how it works. I can meet all these brand new people. It's like you have a you have a really cool skill. You can make friends literally anywhere, which I I, I envy that. <laughs> Thanks. But yeah, the difference is I'm not trying to market it. It's kind of being marketed um, naturally. People are just kind of talking about it. So I'm not so I'm not out there seeking and chasing people. Join my group, join my group. It's just kind of natural. And so that part feels really good. I think it's part of my DBT mindfulness practice practice too. Nice. So the this whole like connector thing, the way you've been describing yourself, I have read about this type of person, I think in a Malcolm Gladwell book. Um, I can't remember which one, maybe the tipping point. And I'm pretty sure Malcolm attributes the tipping point of trends or successful, anything, you know, anything successful, um, the success of that to a person known as a connector. Um, it's not necessarily like the leader, the authority shouting from a megaphone, really marketing, but just like telling a lot of people and it just creates this web. And that really sounds like you. And um, Sounds cool. Very flattering. Yes. And in addition, um, just to put another name on one of your skills that I've picked up on just listening to you um, is individualization. I think that mm. is a huge strength of yours because so many times you've mentioned inclusion and noticing what makes a person shine that's unique to them and highlighting that. And that is just an incredible strength that is not only helping other people, but I can see that it brings you a lot of joy too. And that's just beautiful. I really like love that about you. Thank you very much. That's very kind. (laughs) Of course. I'm just picking up on patterns and trying to reflect it back. So our next question is, who do you want to be? Who do I want to be? Yeah. Oh, man. A better version of myself. (laughs) I think (laughs) I'm a great human being, and I have a lot of great attributes, and I have a lot of attributes that don't serve me well in general. Um, But being a better version of me would be, um, you know, the goal um, there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of influence in the art world and the climate world. Um, people that I'd like to be, um, I do like Cedar Wright. He's the big director, writer, producer for a lot of Alex's stuff. He's one of Alex's dear friends, Honnold, Alex Honnold. I like him. He's quirky. He does a lot of good stuff. Um, my director for my film, Rockaholic, I like him a lot, Chris, because he taught me during the whole film experience to kind of calm down. Um, and do one thing at a time, which I learned in sort of mindfulness practice. And um, he's he would be someone that I would aspire to do because I think I, I have more than just the extroverted side. I also think I have an introverted side. And part of that is just kind of calm, I'm not trying to seek the, 
the, the light out or the, you know, people out or be in the middle of everything, but someone's kind of behind the scenes. And I like that, but definitely a better version of myself because I now know through recovery and through even therapy that I'm, I'm both. I'm the guy that's, yeah, let's go climbing. But I'm also the guy that likes to, Hey, let's have some tea. Let's, you know, let's watch this film or let's just chill or something like that. Cause I enjoy that after five Michael's like just the chill guy. He's quiet. He likes to be alone. He likes to do Zumba. He likes to do his, you know, his films, um, his Netflix. But so, yeah, I like the guy that I am and I have the potential to be so much better. And there's still time. I mean, I'm still young in a lot of ways. Um, And so I do one step at a time. Um, Sometimes it's one moment at a time to sort of do the things that best serve me and help me to show up better in the world. What, what's one thing, so you want to be a better version of yourself, right? So what's, what's one thing that maybe you could work on this week, this month, like a little short-term goal and, you know, what is it and how do you think you would get there to, to start moving in the direction you want to move to? So I have this neighbor upstairs who moved out. She was super loud. And so I complained about her a couple of times and the general manager, and I just moved in here in, in July, um, property manager wasn't very nice. And so the next door neighbor also had problems with his person upstairs. And it's not these people's fault upstairs. They're not just noisy. They're not noisy people, I don't think. It's the acoustics or lack of, and it's also hardwood floors. So it's super loud no matter what. So whoever's down below is going to suffer no matter what. So I just tried to say, well, you know, if you could be quiet during the noise ordinance time, which is 7 a.m. and then um, before 7 a.m. and then um, after 10 o'clock, kind of be quiet. So she moved out anyways. She just thought that that would be the better idea. And now he's kind of showing this place to someone today and he doesn't return any of my calls. Um, he had asked me once early on, would you like reasonable accommodations if you do make that request? And I'm thinking, well, these are kind of just normal accommodations to say be quiet after 10 o'clock because that's like the citywide ordinance. But I did it and I haven't heard anything. So I need to figure out a way because I think the I think this property management place. They're not used to diversity or communication styles that I am accustomed to. Where I come from in San Francisco, tenants have a major rights. They have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And here, I don't see that. And so I feel like I've flexed my voice. I've flexed my muscle about reasonable accommodations because you're going to bring someone else up here above me now, today, or whenever, and it's still going to be the same issue. Like, it's still going to be noise. I'm still going to have issues around it. So I have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And loud sounds all come from growing up in LA. We lived in a neighborhood that had a lot of gunshots for a moment. And it freaks me out. So the loud banging and all of that and the floors, it feels like a war to me. Even though that's what's going on, that's kind of what I go back to. So I just kind of figure out a way to talk to this property manager. So one of the things they did was they called his partner today, left the voicemail. So I would love to have a conversation with you. Because maybe I can kind of reapproach it with a different set of eyes, maybe. Um, and then if he doesn't hear back, then maybe I can just kind of write a note to both of them and, um, Hey, can we have a talk? Can we jump on a call and make it more consultative? Um, when you do it that way and you put it in their court, you get a lot more, a better response rate, I think. 
and I use that a lot in my human resources stuff when I have to deal with hiring managers and they're not responding to jobs or resumes that we're sending them. So, hey, let's jump on a call. You know, what's the best time for you? Because that way, then you're you're cl- you're, you're collaborating with them. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of work some bring some work stuff into it. How I deal with people, man- difficult managers. That's great. Transferable skills. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the property manager is such a nice guy, but he, I, I just don't think his strong suit is follow-up or communication. So that's something that I really want to work on this week because this guy is going to probably be moving in soon. And I would, and I'm sure the guy is a great person. I would hate for him to get caught up in this, what's going on because I haven't been responded to or the guy next door who's also having issues with his neighbor. I feel bad for anybody that lives on the bottom floor. Yeah, I can see how that that's really hard for your, you and your neighbor to the side that has to do. We've with. become friends too out of it, so that's really cool. I have I've never usually have a friend in my apartment complex. Like my friends are out there, but now I have a friend, so that's cool. Yeah, I think commiserating. Neither yeah. of you are getting any sleep. <laughs> I still get my sleep. I make sure. <laughs> what do they call that trauma bonding? I don't. Is that what that is? Yeah. That's a that's a good time. yeah, I guess so, because we both kind of had some similar traumas. But um, so I think that's a plus. I think what I'm proposing, if I don't hear from them with this new guy, is setting up a time to talk to the original property manager, say, hey, can we have a conversation and see what he says? And not yeah. use the same email, I'll do a different completely new email. Maybe, yeah, maybe they've just never been exposed to that, like you said, and they they need to be educated a little bit or taught some a different way to deal with tenants and it seems like you're the right guy to do that i hope so i don't want to have to leave because it's a look at this i haven't even decorated it's like a big dance studio i do my zumba in here can you see it do you have yeah. anybody that lives below you what do you have anybody that lives below you no i'm on the bottom floor but i love the place it's cheap i get a, a free parking spot i can walk downtown portland it's beautiful i'm in a forest i'm on one of the safest hills in all of portland Nice. So there's a lot of so that's the one thing that I would like to change. One thing, if I can just make that impact, then I think I'll be good. I think that we can work things out. Kara, didn't we have? Wasn't Josh from Portland? Our other uh, interview. I don't yes, recall. No. I think you're the second interviewee from uh, Portland. Must be a oh, cool. <laughs> LA, LA to San Francisco to Portland. <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's beautiful i mean this has been part of the game game changer it's just definitely coming here i just i was expecting to go back to san francisco after six months and my family was probably expecting it and my friends are probably expecting it but i'm still here it's still beautiful every day like after this i'm going to go for a walk in the forest oh that sounds beautiful i love that well my next question is how are you going to get there Get to the forest? Yeah. <laughs> well, walk. Originally, it was to the person that you want to be. Well, I think the film is a big part of it. My film is Rockaholic. Like you mentioned, it's a story about how rock climbing saved the lives of three people. Um, when I first started the film Rockaholic, is because I got interviewed by um, National Geographic TV uh, about my climbing group. They were looking at meetups and they found that climbing groups in San Francisco at the climb were very fast paced and they create a community and they wanted to sort of show a piece about that on 
um, there's television stations. So I was excited and got some climbers in the group. And it was all about fun and getting marketing for my group, Get Your Climb On. But they scrapped the program or they're behind budget after about two or three weeks of waiting after we did our first interview. And then they said, we're, we're not going to move forward with it. So I was a little bit disappointed. So I said to my best friend who ran the group with me, hey, we could do this independent. I know filmmakers and I can find the best filmmakers who do climbing. And I did. I was like, it was on. I don't know what happened to me, but something just kind of switched. So we would do a film. It would be independent. It would be like an outdoor rock climbing filmmaker. And it would, public, it would publicize our group, Get Your Climb On. It would be the perfect marketing piece. And that's exactly how I framed it. So I found uh, Chris Ostrin, who did, who's a director for a film called Wide Boys, which won awards at Telluride and Banff Film Festivals and Real Rock. And it was happening in 2012, the Real Rock um, Film Festival. And his piece was in there, Wide Boys, as a 10-minute piece. And I just resonated with it. I loved it. It was about off-width climbing, which is very wide cracks that are very hard to do and dangerous. And so these two English guys who don't have off-width cracks, they didn't really have climbing outdoors in um, Sheffield, England, where they came, were, um, they created this whole, out of wood in their basement, this recreation of what off-width would look like. And you see them in the film doing all these crazy moves and, uh, with wood. It was crazy. So I say crazy three times because nobody else had ever done that. So my director went out and met him and they started to connect and they created a contract and they started to tell their story in film. It was at that moment when I found the film director that I thought he's the one for me. Actually, I first went for Cedar Wright, Chris, I mean, um, you know, um, Alex Honnold's really good friend and filmmaker, but Cedar Wright was on a project. We actually talked on the phone and he says, but I'll be back in about seven weeks. And I kind of didn't wait. So I talked to Chris, um, it was in May, it was uh, 2013, and he says, yeah, I like your story. Thanks for pitching it. Um, I'll be in touch. And then about a week later on my birthday, he calls me. We've always been friends on Facebook. He goes, oh, I see it's your birthday. Happy birthday. I want to do your film. And that's how it started, started to begin. Um, but fast forward, during the time when we started to do this film, we filmed it in Northern California, and then we had this idea about going to China and the jungles of China to a place called Yangshou, um, China, because we were gonna go climbing there anyway. It's one of the best sport climbing places. But it wasn't until we got to China when we started to kind of, our approach to get to some of these climbs, you had to walk through people's backyards. So you have these nice Chinese families who are very welcoming. And I heard that you were supposed to give them money or something to let you walk through their backyards. They didn't want money. They wanted you to come in and have tea or food. And we did, and it was beautiful. Nice. Yeah, two weeks in, in this jungle village and we, it changed. It wasn't about marketing anymore. It was more about the people we meet in uh, along the way, these different communities, the communities that we met along the way. And it was beautiful. We didn't, we offered our money here and there at restaurants. People found out who we were. Um, there was a top Chinese climber who lived in town, Aban. He was our host. He gave us his, he had a, a climber's um, inn. So we went and stayed there for free. Um, and everything changed after that. It was the most beautiful experience. There was one last moment I want to describe before moving forward is I was being filmed on an ant hill, an ant hill, but there was no ants in the deep jungle. It started to rain like a little monsoon. It was crazy. I felt like I was in a, like in a movie in itself. So I'm sitting there and, he's, and Chris, the director, he has this way of making you cry, the calm, unassuming way. So he's asking me this question and I just start bawling. He didn't put that in the film because it was probably didn't make sense but 
I really just sort of underscored why I'm doing all this. It's not just for me. It's not just to market my film. It's that I want to be a part of something because all my life I've always been excluded and invisible and glossed over for being a fat kid, which I didn't talk about. I was bullied because of that and, and treated different. But being a part of community now, because I'm not that kid, I get to speak up now. I'm stronger. I, I look different. Um, I think part of doing this meetup and I think part of doing this film speaks to that. So where I go now is that the film was on hold because of COVID, but now we're refreshing it. I just spoke to Pete Mortimer, the guy that directed the film, The Alpinist. Alpinist, I can never say it right. And I watched that film. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. And he liked the film. He liked the characters. I sent him a 15-minute version of it. And I want him to produce it, or maybe if he wants to edit it and then produce it under his own label. So that's kind of waiting to hear back about that proposition. I also got it in the hands of Brian Honnold. He's my friend. He's Alex Honnold's cousin. So he was supposed to show it to his cousin, Alex Honnold, and his fiance, Sammy, this week. And I'm excited. I'm going to leave it alone. I'm not going to chase Brian. Did you do it? Did you do it? (laughs) Brian's kind of like his own person. He'll do it in his own time. But it's also, I'm looking at film festivals and costs and stuff to see which ones are more appropriate. So what's, uh, how will I get there? I think using this film as a way to transform people's lives, as a way to tell stories that will impact you in a meaningful way, whether you're a climber or a non-climber alike, I think that this is a really good story to continue. And in 12 Steps, when I was in there, they would always say, carry the message to other alcoholics or addicts that are suffering. And I feel that there's a lot of people out there that could benefit from seeing this film. You don't have to rock climb to get there. Maybe you could do basket weaving or kayaking or cooking or baking. I'm baking now. And it's a beautiful, poignant, dark, uplifting, and inspirational film. And I think that that will not not only heal other people, but it will heal me too in the process. Yeah. Um, I feel like I should have asked this more in the beginning because it's something that both Bill and I take for granted because we're both climbers and climbers has been a climbing has been a big part of our lives. And we know that it has been a big part of your life too, but I always forget about the listeners. Sometimes I get caught up in the fact that we're having a conversation and I forget that we're going to share this and people are going to be listening. So For people out there who may be listening who have never rock climbed before or have never thought about rock climbing as a way to transform um, either substance abuse or mental health, what would you say are some of the aspects that you think are most important about rock climbing in relation to those things? Well, I think the number one thing is safety. So taking a class, learning for someone that's more experienced or going, you know, a guide to put you through a program so that you can learn the basics. But part of being um, in that safety piece is making sure that you um, know what you're doing as someone who's climbing on a rope or the other role, which is know how to belay someone on the rope so that you keep them safe while they climb. But I think part of that is huge, which is huge is trust. Um, really having that trust, being open to the idea of trusting another human being because you have their life in your hands and vice versa. And if you don't have that sort of trust or that sort of safety mentality, um, you know, something could go wrong. And we want to keep people safe. Um, I think it's also a partnership or collaboration. You're 
partnering with another person unless you're free soloing. But with these new people coming to my group, it's not something that I would ever advocate. I definitely want to partner with them with someone, um, you know, if they're going through my group with someone that has more experience. Um, I definitely ask up front to have the basic skills, how to play uh, or how to, um, you know, how to lead climb if it's a lead climbing meetup. So I think uh, safety, trust, uh, partnership, collaborating, um, relationship building is part of that. You're building relationship with this person. This person might be your climbing partner for life. This person might be your romantic partner for life. Because like I mentioned earlier, I got 14 couples together through my rock climbing groups. So it could happen. This person could just be a one-off, you know, but at least when you see them next time outside or in the gym, they trust you and they nod to you or say hi to you and not feel as great because you're becoming part of that community. And then I think another thing that's important is just be open and honest. If you don't know something, say, hey, I took the class, but I forgot this part. Can you show me this part? Because um, people like to teach you how to be safe when you're doing something like rock climbing because you can't afford not to be. So if you're hearing the same thing over and over, that's good. The minute you stop going over the safety protocols that you as a climber and a belayer do when you're with each other is um, is to keep like, like keep repeating, like, like it, let it become second nature, like let it become like it's a um, you know parrot over and over. Because the minute that we stop that, we can become complacent and we might forget to tie a knot that it results in an injury. So I think that being open and transparent about what you do know and what you don't know is good and asking for what you need during that experience. If you're not feeling comfortable up on the road, then let us know so we can bring you down safely. Um, that's real important. I think keeping your sense of humor is really good. I'm really good about that because I've been down this road many times through life and through climbing. Um, I just always use appropriate sense of humor, fun, playful humor. Very, I'm a brat too, like you, Bill. <laughs> um, because it just works, you know, it kind of makes things that seem so serious, not so serious. My, my, my mantra in the groups is safe and safety and fun. Yeah. Um, so I think if you have that element of fun too, then those things, those key things all balance going forward, whether you're doing indoor climbing or outdoor climbing will be a really good success, uh, a really good recipe for success. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. You hit on some really important parts, um, of climbing and trust and that relationship building are definitely some of those important things. Um, as an adventure therapist, rock climbing was one of my favorite interventions to do because the activity itself is fun and challenging. And there's so much to say about self-determination and goal setting and yada, yada. But I always thought that the relationship building and, and inherent communication necessity were so great. And I love what you said about safety, because if someone is coming from a life filled with addiction and maybe they're hanging out with other people who, um, are using toxic substances or are engaging in really reckless behavior, there was never an emphasis on safety. And then you walk to a climbing meetup, climbing gym, and the people, a, a complete stranger has so much care for your safety to teach you the knots and check your harness and double check that you're all tied in before you go and, you know, make sure that you're safe coming down. And someone who was only hanging out with an addict crowd before might've never had anyone care for their safety as genuinely as when you join a rock climbing group. So there's that. I just think that's really amazing. Plus you learned how to trust your own abilities, not just other people, but you might've lost the ability to trust yourself 
And so that's another thing that I just think is really great about climbing. On that note, thank you for saying that. I was very kind. I've never had someone sort of eloquently say it that way. So that was really sweet. Um, but this weekend I went climbing and there was a guy belaying me. I, this is the first time I climbed with him, but he's been at my meetup three times. And I was leading a climb. It was only a five nine, so it wasn't too hard, but it's been a while because I've been uh, focusing on tennis elbow and healing from that. So I was feeling confident. We went over the safeties. But at some point, I got to a place of crux, but I don't think it was a real crux that they like publicized in Mountain Project that says, oh, yeah, this one's hard. You know, look out for this. It was my own sort of crux. I stopped and I couldn't go past the next one because I didn't know this guy that well. Um, I like to be three clips in, four clips up before I fall. Yeah, There could have been, I was only one clip in, up. So I felt like there could have been a place where I would have fallen. And I just didn't want to go three more, not knowing him. So I said, okay, I'm done. Let me down. So I'm really quick to be the guy that if I get two clips up and I don't want to go because I'm not feeling safe, I'm coming down. And I'm always that guy. That's important. That's really yeah. important. If you're not feeling safe, that means you could hit the, the ground and major injuries ensue and nobody needs that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, at first I was like, oh, I feel a little bad. I'm not I'm the leader of the group and I'm not finishing the five nine. But you know what? I'd rather be safe. Yeah. So many important metaphors there. Setting boundaries, knowing yourself and communicating your boundaries, decision making. And oh, my gosh, there was another one. Um, I used humor, but I don't know what the joke was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the other one I was going to say is, is that the crux, your crux might not be the crux that's in the book. So exactly. in life, the things that we, we say are going to be a struggle or challenging, they're, they're experienced subjectively. So something that might seem like not a big deal, but is really crushing your life is a big deal. It, it comes, I don't know, it comes down to that like little T, big T trauma and how so many people are invalidating trauma experiences because they don't fit a certain book. But I, I love that. Like you never know what's going to impact you. And when you're climbing and just because you haven't hit the ledge that is defined as the crux, if you've hit that crux somewhere else, validate that. It's okay to be yeah. scared there. It's okay to get stuck there. It's okay to have to come down there. That's true. That's why I did it. I knew, I knew, I know me enough to know, uh-uh, I'm going down. Yep. <laughs> Let me go get some snacks, some carbs <laughs> <laughs> to self, to self, uh, self-soothe, which is one of the DBT things I use. Self-soothe when you're in distress. I like yeah. that. Food, food is a good soother. I think we're moving on to the bonus question. Okay. $300. You ready? Yeah. All right, wager three hundred dollars for this one. No, I want more. <laughs> <laughs> nice reconsideration. All right, so I came up with this question myself, and I, I hope it makes sense. I can um, clarify if it doesn't. What is an important life lesson or growth point that came from a failure that you experienced? From a failure that I experienced. Oh my God, it's a hard one. I know. <laughs> I was trying um, to come up with something tricky, but I didn't want it to be too tricky. Honestly, I do have a really good example. Um, okay. So I mentioned my best friend. He and I, I met him at a meetup 
he and I, totally two different people. He was younger. He was a nurse. I was a talent manager. I was older. They're not two people that would normally hang out, but climbing brought us together and we did. So we became best friends quick. I took him to China with me. He became my co-producer of the film. Um, we got so close. We were like bros. We were like having a romantic relationship. Um, like I would let, like he wouldn't let anybody blame me when we went out with groups and I wouldn't let anyone blame me really, you know, when he was there, when we were together in the same group, but when he wasn't there, it was fine. So it's just because we trust each other instinctually. We knew each other's, yeah, caught all his faults. He caught all mine. I caught his falls in, in Thailand and in China and vice versa. And that was the best climber I've ever met. But at one point during the movie, he met a girl. Um, I met her. We went to dinner together. I really liked her. She was really sweet. But she kind of became a wedge between us. It sort of, it felt like, oh, I'm losing my best friend. I'm losing my producer. And I know. But that wasn't, that wasn't happening. I was gaining, I, I didn't know that I was, I would be gaining a new friend through her. And so I, it was a really hard lesson because there was one moment where I had to realize my own feelings for Aaron were more than just a friend. Like I had a crush on it. I was crushing hard and I didn't really talk about it because I was kind of not ashamed, but it felt like a little bit bad because, you know, he's in my group. He's my co-producer. He's a co-founder of my group. You know, I shouldn't, but I kind of let his girlfriend know and I let him know and everything went to hell. It was bad. Oh, no. He broke, she, she broke up with him and he broke up with me as a friend. So all of us lost out and all of us got hurt. And I, I had to do the immense thing that you do in any good, you know, program, whether it be 12 step or not, you make the amends. but I had to really remember like, why am I making this immense? You know, what, what is it really about? What have I really learned from this? Will I do this again? And he did, it took him years to finally, um, to finally um, accept that amends. That was the hardest amends I've ever done. But I would, what I think what I would do now, and I, I'm fine now, I've like come to accept that we'll never be friends on that level, that I, he still cares, of course, as a friend, and I still care. But it's, it's probably time for us to move on, and we did. So what I would do different this time is, um, I think I would have more boundaries about the friends that I make in my meetup. And can I make friends in these meetups and not have it be like it was? you know, where I, I fall for them. Or I can have friends outside of the meetup, but I just have to be careful about my expectations. What are my expectations? Why am I doing this? Kind of having boundaries and really being realistic about, you know, what happened. And will the same thing happen again? I mean, it could if I don't have strong boundaries, but now I'm a lot more detached. Like I'm friends with the people in my groups while I'm climbing with them, but I'm not seeking them out like I did before with my ex-best friend to hang out outside of so that part I've been able to do, and it's not hard. And I think that I've grown enough and have become stronger as a person and as a climber, um, as a climber and as someone that runs that group that that won't ever happen again because it was painful for him and for me. And I don't know if they ever got back together. Like, I don't know the story there. And I'm nosy. I want to know, but I let <laughs> it go because um, it was the right thing to do. And so I, I grew from it and moved forward. <laughs> I haven't talked about that in a while. So that was good. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I think that is, that is a really important life lesson, though. Um, 
I, especially the part about expectations and relationships, because you can only control your role. And mm. if you get overly invested, I mean, feelings, emotions, that's a huge energy investment. Yeah. And if it's not reciprocated or you know, it doesn't turn out the way that you're expecting, oh man. And then the the girl, I'm like, oh no, this is like a movie, like one of those teen movies where there's a girl or a guy enters the scene and then breaks up the best friends or the actually in love with each other or something. I don't know. It felt like that. But I'm I'm wondering why I couldn't just let it go, not have that conversation with her. Like there's different ways I was trying to look at it that maybe I could have done different, but you know, I'm not there. I was a different person then. I'm a different person now. And I know that that will not happen again. No one's going to get hurt because of me not having boundaries or me having these expectations or this, even this sense of, um, you know, um, where, I don't know. I just think that like my feelings with myself are a lot stronger that if I ever develop feelings for a person, the power dynamic would be different. It wouldn't be someone that like Aaron was, uh, that's his name, but you, you don't know his last name. So yeah, <laughs> I hope he's well. I'm sure he is. He's, he's, he's a successful guy, but he still has credit in my film because he helped me produce it. And that's important. You still keep those memories alive and you live those with him. And those seem like really important, fun times that you guys had together. And you saw him in the movie when we were in China, that, those scenes, he was belaying me or we were making jokes. He was the Asian American <laughs> gentleman. Okay, cool. Cool. Now I know I could put a name to his face. <laughs> awesome. Well, I don't think you uh, won your $300 on the bonus oh. question. Sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay. We, just, we just don't was, give that money away to everybody. <laughs> there was a slight mentality. We, we, all, we all win. <laughs> I will split it three ways. Sure. <laughs> all right. So the last thing that we do in every podcast is share some quote related to life or unhappiness or happiness. I guess it could be related to unhappiness, but I try to keep them positive. And then we just get your reaction. So um, let me go ahead and share that. This quote is from William Feather. Plenty of people miss their share of happiness, not because they never found it, but because they didn't stop to enjoy it. Your thoughts, feelings? Um, I think it's a really good quote right now because while I do all these lovely things to create community and that brings me happiness, there's moments where personally that I don't get to go out and meet people, to date people, to take people out on dates. I have not allowed myself to be in relationships or really date since I got sober. The first year they teach you an AA, but I'm not an AA right now. But back then I learned that you can't date the first year and it kind of stayed with me. Um, So I think that there's a part, there's a, I think that a thing that'll make me feel whole and complete is having the opportunity to date, maybe meet someone that's for me, that's my person, that's, you know, special to me. But if that doesn't happen, that's okay too. Um, I'm not because it's not to suggest I'm not happy, but I think it's a reminder that hey, this is your time too. You're everyone's happy, Michael. You take care of people, you create community, you, you do things, you give people jobs. They're, they're good. Now it's time for you to find that sort of happiness 
you know, with another person that you can connect with. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And so I did go last week on a coffee date and that was cool. <laughs> nice. How was the coffee? The coffee was good. They were kind of checking out other people as they walked by. That part I don't particularly care for because I think that's kind of not cool. But, but yeah, but you got to keep you got to keep trying. Um, oh, I mentioned it too. I go, you know, I'm hesitant about having a second coffee date with you because you know you were checking out everybody that walked by that was cute. Because <laughs> I saw them, I don't miss a beat. I do not miss a beat. <laughs> and, and they kind of got shy about it, but they said that they were super nervous and looking at my face sometimes they're kind of nervous and you know, I get it, but I, at least getting to that coffee date was huge. It was huge. That's awesome. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, you've made it to the end. Oh my we, gosh. We really appreciated you today. We loved all of your, your thoughts Thanks. and feelings. Thank you so much. We wanted to also thank our listeners for everybody that have joined us on all our podcasts. Michael's giving you guys two thumbs up. You can't see it, but they're there. (laughs) (laughs) We also have a worksheet to help you uncover your happiness. It's a free resource we made for you, and it will lead you to find out who you are now, who you want to be, and how you're going to get there. If you want the link to the worksheet, it will be below. Thanks, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Michael. Peace and love. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.